between all those people on, on that train and his, only, and his son. I mean, if you've ever had a child or you've been around children and the joy that you experience around them when things are going well, you, to imagine someone innocent dying like that, it really pulls your heartstrings. And as I was reading through the Gospel of Luke, which is what we're on this week, some of you have read ahead and you're in Desire of Ages or you're further along and you're in John or something, but I wanted to focus on the Gospel of Luke and how salvation, that parable that was on the screen there, helps us realize that that's what the Father did for each one of us. And he doesn't want us just to go on by through life like many of those people on the train and they didn't even notice and didn't even know what happened there. But that one person did. And that is what brought the joy to the Father at the end of that story. And I believe today we can leave here providing our Father with many reasons to have joy because each one of us has remembered that in the place of each one of us, the Son has died. And not only died, but He's risen and He wants us to be ready for His soon return. And so Jesus took my place, He took your place, My place. The Bible says in Luke 22, verse 47, Judas betrays Jesus. They bind Jesus. They take him away. They take him over the brook Kidron, past the gardens, past the olive groves. And in the stillness of that night, what rings out is the sound of a mob taking a man, binding him, roughing him up. And that's the one who takes my place in your place. They're eager to take him to the palace of Annas. And when he's there, Peter denies Jesus there. Jesus, according to Luke's Gospel, looks right at Peter after he has just denied him. And then the beatings begin on Jesus. You find them recorded in verse 63 down there in Luke. The men who held Jesus there had him bound, began to mock him, and began beating him. And it's repeated. And this scene is repeated more than once. And then that wasn't enough. They wanted to ridicule him, and so they blindfold him, and they began to punch him and to slap him and all of that as well. It'd be like taking a young person that we love dearly, blindfolding them in front of our face, holding us back, and beginning to pummel them with punches. You have ever seen a beating taking place and you wish you could stop it? I have. I've seen it on two occasions. More than that, counting my upbringing in my home. But one occasion was, there I was, 17 years old, in the county jail, and I deserved to be there justly. I knew that. I was guilty. I pled guilty, pretty much. And most of us there were putting on shows and trying to get out as soon as we can. And I remember one night, there was a gentleman who came in new to the unit, and I remember hearing the whispers and hearing how people thought that maybe he had disrespected them on the outs, and they began to plot how they were going to pound him that night. And I thought, they don't even know if he's done anything wrong. They think he might look like somebody they used to know. And I prepared myself for that. I said, if they jump that guy, I'm going to help that guy. But when it starts happening, it's a little different story, isn't it? Because there I am, I, I hear the smacking sound of the fists, He's up on top of the bunk bed. We got this huge dorm unit there. I'm at, on, on a bunk bed over here next to a, a guy that I got to know pretty well. 
and we see them all jump him and grab him, pull him down, and just began to pummel this guy. They don't even know him from anybody. They think that he looks like somebody. And he's getting swollen up, and I'm, I look to another guy next to me, and I say, well, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to jump in there. And so I stand up. I'm a Christian. I'm thinking, how do I, I don't want to throw a punch, but I just said, knock it off. And the other guy stood behind me, and that was enough to stop the beating. Another time it was my brother I watched being beaten. But it makes you feel sick inside. Almost like a piece of you is dying as you watch this take place. And can you imagine that taking place there and nobody steps in? The preacher doesn't step in. The judge doesn't step in. The officers don't step in. They just stand there and watch and encourage a beating upon somebody who is totally innocent. And so as I watched this text, and I was reliving it this week, I just had this real, like that sorrow you got in the movie there and that emotion that hit you, it just hit me in this text. And I sat there in my study, in my chair, in my, office, in my home, and I, and I just about just let it all out. It made me feel so sad. How does it make you feel to stand by when someone is being beat or ridiculed? It hurts. And it hurts even more when I look at this text because he, Jesus goes on and after they've pummeled him and his face is beginning to swell and all this is taking place, humanly speaking, he's suffering, yeah. But inwardly, he's suffering even more because of who's doing this to him. And he tells them, after they say, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say it because I am. Am. And I wondered if it was just a regular word there, oh, yeah, I'm he, but it was no, more of a statement, I am. Who is this? It's none other than the Creator Himself. The Yahweh of the Old Testament, we call Him, or Jehovah, whatever you want to call Him, or Lord. This is the one whom they are doing this to. This is the one who loved them so much that at the very beginning, He said, just like that king in this children's story, I will do anything. I will go into battle for my children. I will crush the head of the serpent. That's the one back there. And here He is, and they're bruising Him all over the place. He has done only good. And can you stand by and watch it? You have to watch it in the story here because it keeps going. It keeps getting worse. The son of the father, there he is, being beaten. More than just being crushed by a bridge like that video showed. Just being slowly discarded by humanity. It saddens me as I think of it. This is the one the scriptures testified about. This is the one that the miracles that he did, he always reached out to those who were being hurt. Now, nobody will reach out to him when he's being hurt. Yes, John is there kind of watching. We, we find in different accounts, he's kind of there. But imagine the sorrow in that disciple's soul as he sees all of this taking place with Jesus. And years ago, this didn't hit me like it's hit me now. And I think it's because he's become a closer friend over the years. And now I just can't stand it. I almost couldn't finish the reading this week. This is the one they were judging. They were judging the judge of the universe. The one who could truly tell us right and wrong, could, could truly tell us what is good and what is evil, could truly show us the true way of loving each other. This is the one, the loving judge. And there they are, pummeling the guy. And can you imagine being the soldier standing there watching this happen? You know the guy hasn't been condemned by the law. You know that he's, he's been 
it's pretty much a religious reason why they're doing this. And here's those religious people pounding this guy. Can you imagine the anger in their souls? You don't have to imagine. Read Desire of Ages. You'll find. She saw in vision. These, these people were just angry at how the soldiers were angry at how these religious people were mistreating Jesus. Priests and rulers forgot the dignity of the office and abused the Son of God with foul language. They taunted him with his parentage. Yeah, you were born of a virgin. Sure you were. Yeah, you were born out of wedlock. I mean, imagine that. Just ridiculing the guy. They declared that his presumption in proclaiming himself the Messiah made him deserving of the most, and I would put the word heinous, death. The most dissolute men engaged in infamous abuse of the Savior. An old garment was thrown over his head and his persecutors struck him in the face. One of them says repeatedly, prophesy to us, Who's, who is it that hit you? When the garment was removed, one poor wretch spit in his face. Imagine spitting in the face of the one who's going to sit in judgment of you. Surely they don't know what they're doing fully. Have we done the same thing? How is it that if we're truly spending time with this guy, Jesus, if we truly know the Scriptures, how is it that we can be so mean so often sometimes? That's what I ask myself. Not that I mean all the time or anything like that, but I come across it and I view this all the time. And about a year and a month ago, I was at Leone Meadows and I wondered to myself, why is it that deep down inside I feel like as I've led the flocks, I become I become what I've beheld. I've seen people just ridicule one another. I've seen people cut each other down. I've seen all this negativity, and I just, I wanted to vomit it out spiritually. I wanted it bled out of me. And I was at Leone Meadows, and it was a pastor's retreat, and I, I remember walking around at the middle of the night at three in the morning saying, Lord, I want to be tender like I used to be. I don't want to be changed by other people. And then I heard the coyotes howl. And I said, well, I was going to go walk over that way, but I'm not going to walk over there anymore. And, and the voice told me, no, you're going to walk over there. You're not going to let other people change you. And it's like the situations I've faced in life are like those coyotes, are like those things that try to keep me from truly experiencing what God would have me to be. We have a great capacity to love, but our human nature has even a greater capacity to be the one's causing the beating in the story. And we have to come to him. We have to behold him, recognize that what we have done has caused this to him. And by beholding Jesus, we can be changed. There I was on Facebook. It was there too. Somebody was ridiculing a well-known historian in our church. And I thought to myself, I th- this was a pastor's forum. You know, Why, What are we doing ridiculing this guy? We haven't even... Has anybody talked to him face to face? Has anybody pointed out his error to this, this gentleman that somehow he's historically so wrong that we have to criticize him and ridicule him publicly and make him out to be some kind of demon? And there I was on the Facebook page and I just about just totally obliterated my Facebook page because of that. And the person who had asked the question was asking the pastors, what are some topics you'd like to hear from this historian when we come to the pastor's meeting? And it turned into a, just a brutal fight on the internet. 
And all I put in there was, I put Ephesians 4.29. And I left it at that. And the guy who was picking the fight, he said, well, yeah, well, the Scripture says to the law and to the testimony. And he just took, and it's, he used it as an excuse to lay into this guy even more, and then to lay into me. It's like we dehumanize each other on the Internet. But you know what I found? That fighting and proving that we're better than each other isn't just on the Internet. It's been existed since the time of Christ. Before that, even. And so I thought, what is the cure of that? I removed my comment, and the guy said, Oh, where'd the guy go with Ephesians 4.29? And so I told the administrator, I said, can you please take this off here? This is supposed to be a pastor's forum where we can interact and discuss things that are going on in ministry, not to tear each other down. And then I reported them to Facebook, and they were eventually removed. But I thought to myself, that's me in the story, isn't it? Doesn't that same human nature exist and the only cure is right before them and they won't even look to Jesus? They just keep pounding this guy. And then the text continues, and rising up, so there they are, they've allowed him to be beaten and ridiculed and all that, and they've been sitting as judges, they rise up, lead him to Pilate, begin to accuse him, Pilate finds no fault with the man, and they grow even more fierce than they were before. How could that ever be? Isn't it fierce enough to, to, to dehumanize somebody and to pound them and to beat them like that? No, actually, once you dehumanize somebody, you then discard them, and they're worth nothing. And that's why we have to learn to love each other, because if we don't have love for one another, we will dehumanize each other, and then we will discard each other, and then more heinous things than even that will take place, because Jesus said, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And so they grow more fierce, and it gets even worse. Uh, Jesus doesn't answer them. And Pilate sends him over to Herod because he hears that he caused trouble in Galilee. And, I th- and you think in the story, surely somebody will see that he's just in the story. And, and even he- Herod sees him just. Pilate sees him just. You think somebody will step in and prevent these religious, zealous, I'm not sure what to call them there, just possessed in a frenzy of satanic wrath. You think somebody would hold them in check. And the soldiers have tried. Otherwise, they would have torn them apart by now. But now he goes to Herod. And Herod throws the same temptation that, that Satan threw out there in the wilderness. Hey, turn these rocks to bread. He says, why don't you do a miracle in front of me? I mean, imagine that. You've been totally betrayed. You've been totally beaten up by the very people you've been called to minister to. And now, here's the guy. The same temptation. At a very weak moment in your, Christian, in your, your spiritual existence, throwing the same temptation at you. But Jesus overcomes. He doesn't answer. And then he's sent away. And the thought hit me, do we ever send Jesus away? Do we ever think that he's within our jurisdiction to judge? Do we recognize his innocence and our guilt? Now, Herod doesn't seem to feel the need of a Savior here. Do I constantly feel the need of a Savior? He remains silent. And our young people, here's your answer for one of your questions. And do you remember Isaiah 53, right? Doesn't it say in Isaiah 53 that this is exactly what would happen? That the Savior would come, by his stripes would be healed, and it continues on from there? Who has believed our report? To whom has the eye of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender root and as a plant out of a dry 
ground. He hath no form nor comeliness nor beauty that we should desire him. It keeps going from there. He is despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, verse 3. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Notice that. Sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has taken our place. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It keeps saying this. He was taken from prison and from judgment. All who will declare his generation. Who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How could it please the parent to watch this? Overall, I would say, if we recognize that it would. But what happens if we don't? What if we're like the people on that train that just kind of go on by and nobody even looked out to see what was going on in that father? pleases him that we could recognize what was done for us. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It goes on from there. He pours out his soul into death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, made intercession for the transgressors. If we follow this lamb, if we watch him carefully, we'll then see that something begins to change within us. We'll then begin to see that it was just for each one of us that this took place. If only one of us here would have accepted it, it would have been worth it to go through everything that Christ is going through. And it gets even worse. The chief priests, back in Luke 23 now, and scribes, they stood and accused him. That's the innocent lamb. Accusing this guy. Humiliating him by, with his guardsmen. Mocking him by putting luxurious clothing around him. Herod then sends him again to Pilate. He doesn't see Jesus as his Savior. Pilate and Herod become friends. Isn't that interesting? Usually, unlikely alliances occur when some innocent person is being condemned. It's, it's got to be that way because they've got to find a way to, oh, we're all going along with this now. And it somehow appeases their consciences. And so, Herod ridicules Jesus. And then Jesus takes our place. Here's the text. They all cried out at once, saying later on, Away with this one, that's Jesus, release to us Barabbas, son of the Father. Isn't that interesting? The very name of the guy is, is, is pointing us in the direction of Jesus. This is the true one over here, not the murderous, hateful one who's over here, but the one who's innocent, the one who won't say a word. He was tried for sedition and for murder. And Pilate, willing to release Jesus, spoke again to them, but they cried, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him, therefore I will chastise him and let him go. A sign of weakness. To, it's like, give him a little bit of blood and, and maybe that will... No, actually, when you give somebody a little bit of blood and you, you give in to 
allowing this type of abuse to take place, it is only the beginning. It gets worse. And so we find he was scourged. That wasn't enough. They keep pressing and pressing on Pilate for him to be crucified. Pilate gives judgment that the request should be granted in verse 24 and verse 25. And he released to them the one who had been thrown into prison for sedition and murder whom they had asked for. But he delivered up Jesus to the one. Notice the contrast here. It's like in the story. Which one do we want? I recognize myself as the one, human nature speaking, that has the seeds of anger and murder in me just like Barabbas, the son of the father. But then here's this innocent one over here and it says, you could be, you could, you could have him in your life. Or you could have this one over here. Does it really take a rocket scientist to figure out which one should be chosen? But the problem is, is that there's a lot of pride and a lot of things going into that decision. And they, as a nation, choose a murderer and sedition, which never really is vanquished from their kingdom until the destruction of Jerusalem and they're scattered everywhere. And then some of them begin to turn to God. It seems like they almost have a murderer ruling over them from that point on. Instead of the innocent one. And so the son of the father that they chose was the wrong one. And Jesus is led away. He can't even carry his own cross. They've beaten him up so bad and scourged him. They lay the cross upon him. He can't carry it, so they've got to find Simon, who more than likely in their mind isn't going to partake of their feast and all of that, and they're going to get him all uh, ceremonially unclean in the process. They're going to put the cross on him because they themselves surely wouldn't lift a finger to help. And when they came to the place which is called Calvary, they crucified him, and the criminals were there, one on the right, and one on the left. And it's like you've got another choice in the matter. Do you notice in the story, it's all about choices? Like the prodigal son, which one are we? Here we have, which one are we? We, we want to be like the son of Father Jesus, the son of God, or like Barabbas? And here you've got two criminals, one who's reviling and, and ridiculing Jesus and the one who's accepting Jesus. And so the sacrifice takes place. And Jesus Imagine you're going through all of that and you still have the mental capacity in you to know that your father is near even though you don't feel him there. He cries out. He obviously recognizes his father can hear him. Is not leaving him alone in this situation. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they begin to rip his, to part his clothing, hang him there. And one of them rebukes the other criminal and actually stands up for Jesus. And it's like spiritually speaking, somebody finally stood in the gap and kept the spiritual beating from taking place. And here is the joy. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Imagine that. I mean, there you are trying to just breathe out these words on crucifixion cross. Every one of these words is just painful to utter. And Jesus says, truly I say to you today, today when I don't look like much, today when I seem like no one's on my side, today when I seem like I'm far away and somehow condemned by God, today, I'm telling you, today, you will be with me in paradise. So actually the most accurate translation from the Greek is to put the comma after today. I've looked at it in multiple translations. But the main idea is not about the comma. The main idea is about the statement. And he's telling them, the statement I'm telling you today is this. And the sun gets darkened Veil of temple is torn. There's a lot of details here. And he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit 
my breath, my spirit. He breathes his last. And some of his last words are, Father, I don't feel you. I don't feel your presence, but I trust you. And as I read that, I imagine myself there, hearing the words of Jesus, watching the clouds grow all around there, shielding the sun. I said to myself, who else could do this but his Father? Because he's humanly there, hanging on the cross. And so it's almost like his Father's presence is right there, shielding the sun. And then it doesn't really lift totally for three hours, right? I mean, it's sitting there for a number of time, quite a bit of time. Then who else would rumble from heaven but his father who had spoken from heaven in the past? And who else would be right there who he's talking to? It was his father walking him through that. He was the son of the father all the way to the end. And so we never walk alone if we are God's children. If the son sets us free, if we put our trust in him, he says, you will be free indeed. That's the cry that comes out from the cross. I'm granting you life if You'll accept it. And that's something to get excited about. So as I read the text this week, thought came to me, okay, I've recognized in the story where I'm at. And now I'm willing to com- commit myself to Christ. I'm going to receive that pardon, that, that promise that he gave to the thief. I want that for me. And then after I received that, throughout the week, I kept replaying my mind, reminding me, reminding me, Murray, that was for you. And then I found that story last night that, train story. I'd watched it years ago. Spent an hour trying to download that thing. Becca, thank you for doing it in just a few minutes. And it hit me so hard that that's what happened for me. The son died for me. It doesn't leave me somber. It doesn't leave me somber. It leaves me happy and wonderful, and I want to share that with everybody, and it emotionally hits me. It makes me feel sad, but then it turns into joy because he didn't stay dead. It turns into joy because now he extends a crown to each one of us. He bore our sins upon that cross and gives us a crown instead. And the Bible says in Romans 8, 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We are the children of God. We become sons and daughters of the Father. The Son of the Father himself says, salvation is for all of us. And so I want to stay focused on him. I want to look and see what he's done for me, but I want to realize that he's coming back soon. I want to go from the cross to the resurrection to the second coming of Jesus. That's what he's, the Son of the Father has done for me. You can hang on that tree if you want. He's done it in your place. If you want to somehow allow your own religious track to heaven to stand in the place of Jesus, then you're going to have to hang on the cross yourself. It's, it's a painful experience. But if I accept what he has done for me and how I, by faith, have died there already, then it frees me to share such good news with the world that a crown is waiting for each wayward child and that soon and very soon he's coming again. Father in heaven, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for all these parables we can recount in our minds to illustrate it. But yet we realize that those things just Don't tell the full story. We're going to need to unpack these things every day of our lives and even into eternity. Guide us to remember that we are a son or daughter of the Father, that we are your children, that salvation is to each one of us. For for each one of us you have died 
risen and are coming again soon. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you and thank you. Amen.